Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're feeling happy, healthy, and safe. It's a big show, so let's jump right in. As we approach the end of another year, I wanted to lighten things up a little bit, so today we're having a look at two movies that are guaranteed to make you laugh. Based on the 1957 film by the name of Zero Hour, the movie Airplane is the story of a washed-up pilot summoned to greatness on a potentially doomed aircraft that spoofed the genre of airline disaster movies and wound up grossing $83 million and became part of the zeitgeist of American popular culture. The film's co-writers and co-directors David and Jerry Zucker and Jim Abrams have a new book, Surely You Can't Be Serious, The True Story of Airplane, available now wherever you buy fine books. They'll stop by in just a little bit to tell us all about the making of the movie and the film's lasting impact. First, let's meet John Heater, John Grease, and Ephraim Ramirez, the stars of Napoleon Dynamite. That's the movie Jim Carrey said changed comedy movies. The story of a listless and alienated teenager who decides to help his new friend Pedro win the class presidency in their small western town while still dealing with his bizarre family back home is one of the most quoted movies of all time. John Heater, who plays the title character, John Grise, who plays the legendary Uncle Rico, and Efren Ramirez, who plays Pedro, join me via Zoom. John, I know that you knew director Jared Hess from Brigham Young University, but you weren't be planning on becoming an actor. So how did all of this happen for you? I had done one other, I think one, maybe two other student films that I had acted in. Mm-hmm. But it was more kind of like I was part of a one was really because I was part of this production class and they needed an actor. And in the group, they're just like, well, let's just get John. He's kind of a goofball and a little bit of that class clown. I mean, I always kind of put myself out there in a way that was like, well, I made lots of videos uh, my entire like high school career for projects. And, and we were kind of known for making, you know, videos and. I'd always put myself in those because it was like, well, you know, as a student, you know, at high school student, you're not hiring actors. You're just like getting your friends and goofing around. But so yeah. I always enjoyed being in front of the camera, just kind of in a goofy way, nothing serious. Um, and then when I got into uh, college, I was in the film program. Jared, mm -hmm. that's how we met. I was in the film program. I took an acting class. Um, I took a couple acting classes and it was like kind of a requirement, but I, I just remember when I took the class, I was like, really, really into it. I really got it. I, I understood it. I was like, oh, okay, this makes sense. I had done kind of like kid, you know, children's educational theater growing up during the summers and stuff, but this finally snapped and all the, like the basics, um, really kind of snapped into place. So I was you know, I would audition for student films, for friends films. Mostly it was like they would just put me in. And this was really one of the first ones. Jared just asked me, hey, do you um, read the script or what do you think? I think you would be good for this role. Um, and I think he just could tell that we had similar, a similar sense of uh, what this world was like. And he couldn't have been more right. <laughs> I read it and I was like, yeah. Everything about this, I completely understand. I get this world. I get this character. I get this humor. Um, and, like you know, he kind of did his version. 
kind of Napoleon in the voice. And I kind of put that through my own filter. And that's how I got involved. Girls only want boyfriends who have great skills. You know, like nunchuck skills, bow hunting skills, computer hacking skills. Efren, you had auditioned for two films. There was a studio movie called The Alamo uh, and Napoleon Dynamite. You got both of them. Why did you choose Napoleon Dynamite? Well, uh, a few reasons, but uh, I mean, as an actor, you know, you audition and you hope to get anything. <laughs> so, um, and and as I say, what's funny is that I remember asking my father about like what to do, and my father said, "Follow your heart." That's what I would do, and 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 that's what Napoleon says to Pedro in the movie. Follow your heart. That's what I do. So, so. You, you you kind of trust that, um, um, and I I know Napoleon Dynamite was a, it was a it was a lead role, it was a character role, and mm. I was so sure that I could do it, but having to meet these guys, right, John Bryce and, and John Heater, and to see how the character came alive through their vision, through their eyes, and the way they were dressed as the as the character, the roles, and to see all the rest of the actors dressed as the characters, and I thought. Um, well, this is going to be different. Uh, this is going to be very unique, and 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 I I I hope um, I I can give it service. So yeah. um, so I was I was really uh, uh, fortunate to be a, a part of something like this where I could say, yeah, I'm in this movie. Why do you got your hood on like that? Well, when I came home from school, my head started to get really hot. So I drank some cold water, but I didn't do nothing. So I laid in the bathtub for a while, but then I realized that it was my hair that was making my head so hot. So I went into my kitchen and I shaved it all off. I don't want anyone to see. You're listening to John Heater, John Grise, and Ephraim Ramirez, the stars of Napoleon Dynamite on The Richard Krause Show. John uh, Grise, you had quit acting. And then you get pulled back in to do a movie called The Big Empty. And then sort of through a weird bit of circumstance, that led to Napoleon Dynamite for you. So tell me how that worked. Well, I, I you know, I owe a lot to Jory White. He was the guy who called me and, and uh, uh, for The Big Empty. And he's like, what are you doing? You're like my go-to guy. I mean, where have you been? Why did you quit? You know, and he he... He, he kind of dressed me down for it. You know, he really gave me a hard time and said, well, I've got this role. And if you do it and I was like, yeah, I mean, I, I haven't worked for, you know, like 10 months. I've been writing and I said, I'll do it. And then <clears throat> lo and behold, you know, after that, I went back to just scribbling away at this terrible opus that I thought I was turning <laughs> out. And and um, and then lo and behold, he he, you know, was my champion again in that. Uh, he, they were using the offices, the editing offices for the big empty, which was now completed. Basically, they'd locked picture. So the offices were there and they could use them just so happened to be on the Fox lot, but they were just renting it. And um, that's where they used the, for the casting uh, of, of Napoleon. And and so when they'd made offers to a few larger named <laughs> people uh, that I, just unceremoniously turned it down. I don't even think they read it. 
then the jory said look let me just show you this guy's footage and he, he showed the footage and it just so happened it was a fun character and you know lucky for me and then the offer came and you know at that time i'd had some guy contact me he was working out of his apartment he had no other clients <laughs> and uh he said i want to be your manager and lo and behold the, the, the that call went to him and he was like you don't want to do this this is nothing who are these people they have no money you know trying to I, i'm like look you're working out of your apartment and i want to read it let me read it and sure enough it was so beautifully constructed. The screenplay was so wonderfully written by Jared and Jerusha that I was like, I don't care who these people are. I don't care where this is being shot. I will drive myself there. I'm doing this movie. You know, it was, uh, it's uh, in kismet and providence, you know, wonderful. I'm so lucky. I feel so fortunate, you know. You see, this ain't your run of the mill crapperware. These are some serious Nupont fiber woven bowls. So if we purchase the 24-piece set, the mini sailboat is included. That's correct, sir. To be still talking about this film almost 20 years later is remarkable. To be able to have people like me and like the audiences that come to see you when you, you screen the movie uh, still interested and still quoting it is kind of mind-blowing. It, it must really kind of take you by surprise a little bit sometimes. Absolutely it does. In fact, you know, that I think that we, we discussed this a lot between the three of us. And, and I, I, you know, it, this, you know, especially in this day and age, you know, in America, it's a very fractured society. You know, we, we're having all kinds of kind of reinventions of our, of our, how we set our social strata and, 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 Fortunately, uh, unfortunately, it's there's a lot of acrimony, uh, and and this film just seems to kind of rise above that, or else kind of remind us, you know. And I don't want it to be like, oh, this is the good old days, because it's still of of a contemporary time, even though stylistically it feels like it's another time. Yet, you know, uh, he's chatting online with babes, so it's like not <laughs> like it's not so not too far. far removed. Yeah, right, exactly. But it is. It's it's still within the time after, say, the 2000s, when our attention spans have dwindled to near nothing. And so and this film still has, you know, it has inclusion, such a sense of inclusion and optimism. And I think that uh, that's why so many generations are able to come together and all agree that, you know, that it's like it's like one fabric. There's not differences here. It's all one group that see this as as um as a positive reinforcement of what i think you know society i guess can be i mean i don't maybe i'm making it too heavy but i mean it it, it, it aside from how things are i just think that it's just has a lot of optimism it's inclusion that you know and uh and uh, um and just a positive force you know i think it's also like it has you know, this movie is not heavy on its like cultural uh, pop culture references and dating it in certain ways. It feels old when you watch it, but it feels new when you first watch it. Mm -hmm. And I think it's kind of that translates the same to pretty much like it was meant to at the time is meant to feel like almost like amb ambiguous in terms of its setting in place. It's like, OK, 
this could have taken place in the 70s. I mean, besides the inclusion of like chatting online with babes, but in like that's really it for the mention of internet. So it's almost like, well, it could take place in the 60s or the 70s. It could take place in the 90s or the 2000s. It did. And so even though it does, and we we tell everybody, yeah, it was supposed to take place in the 2000s, it kind of set the stage for this, um, just this timeless quality. And so and I, really anybody, you know, I feel like having been 20 years, you know, at 10 years later, and then at 20 years later, people felt, oh, yeah, we could watch it because it is kind of meant to be like a, a movie for all for all time, um, all decades. All yeah, time. I mean, it, it is. And, and there's a universality, which is one of the words I was looking for. There's yeah. a universality. These characters are kind of like a new version of, say, like the old Théâtre de Soleil or the restoration comedies where yeah. these characters were were kind of cut out of uh, uh iconic or somewhat car- caricaturistic but but these would without being caricatures these are kind of present day molds of 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 universal characters you know uh like pantaleone or whatever they are mm-hmm. from back in the old uh, uh restoration comedies or teatro de soleil you know and Efren, Sweet I th- name drops there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Efren, I think that one of the things that has made this movie last for so long is that it's about underdogs, and it's. I, I think there are more people who are kind of outside the circle who are feeling like underdogs than there are inside the circle, and I think that's one of the things that people love about Napoleon Dynamite. Yeah, uh, look, every single character in the film itself, it's some some way or another are i mean they're all oddballs every character in the film is just trying to figure something out about life so and what's great that you know in the end of the film is that something great happens to every single character i mean pedro becomes president napoleon ends up being friends with deb and 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 uncle rico uh that girl shows up on a bike Right, yeah, grandma gets the llama, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. She gets to make out with the llama, uh, and she and her coccyx is all of a sudden perfectly healed. But yeah, <laughs> but but also, you know, just kind of uh, kind of vamping on that theme, you know, even even like the 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 at any school I've ever been to, and people that I've known who are wildly popular or you know, good looking or like the king and queen of the school uh, dance or however, you know, homecoming. You know, when you get one on one with these people, they have their insecurities. Mm. They have their problems. They wonder if they fit. I mean, everybody wonders if they fit. And I think that even though the face of Napoleon is kind of like this kind of, you know, like this, this uh, dorky kind of, you know, punch it. You know, <laughs> you know, nothing like the real guy who who played him. <laughs> right. You're listening to John Heater, John Grise, and Ephraim Ramirez, the stars of Napoleon Dynamite on the Richard Krause show. Anyway, but uh, you know, I think everybody does. I think that's how everybody relates to it because no matter what, at the end of the day, you know, when you're alone in your room or you're doing whatever it is you're doing. You know, it doesn't matter how many people think you're just like the most incredible whatever. You could be the quarterback of the 
football team, but you could still feel like you just don't fit or, mm. you know, I mean, I, I think that everybody shares that. And I think that that, it, you know, it kind of works its way across the board that that everybody in this film has that thing. But they're despite that, they have their sense of place and their sense of, uh, you know, their sense of entitlement for who they are as they are, you know. Interesting to hear uh, each of you in other interviews that I've seen talk about the shooting of the film. John Heater, you said it was like a glorified student project. Uh, John, you said it was like being on summer camp. Uh, Efren, you've talked about this as well. Tell me uh, a little bit, uh, and Efren, I'll, I'll start with you, what it was like shooting uh, this film, because it sounds like it was a little bit more uh, seat of the pants than maybe some other films that you may have worked on. You know, when you're working on an independent film, it's different from a big studio picture because it's much more intimate. You have a smaller crew. And while working in Preston, Idaho, in a such small town, yeah. all we had was each other. I mean, the llama, the name of the llama is Dolly, and mm -hmm. it belongs to the director's mom, hence the <laughs> Dolly Llama. And the director's mom's name is Christmas. So... <laughs> Just knowing those facts, you kind of go. And her, and her la but her last name, married name, the new name was Day. So Christmas Day, or that was maybe her her, her maiden, maiden name, Christmas Day. <laughs> wow. So, so working on the film, it 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 became so memorable because you're not focusing on on the the sort of like the rules of working on set and 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 following those protocols. But it became much more um, like that student film where your family and you start to work together every day. And for us, we were just, uh, I, I kept an example reading the scenes where, where Kip and Napoleon are having to deal with a time machine. And I'm like, we're, we're shooting a scene with a time machine? <laughs> <laughs> There's so many moments in the film that, that, that ring so true to real life. And that's, that's one thing that we forget that a lot of these scenes are based on real occurrences that happen to the director's life. And I, and I'm, I, I look back amazingly in 20, within 20 years, how strong this film has held up because we all cared for not only each other, but we really cared about the project itself. It's amazing. The life that this movie has. Yeah. I love it. I love it because in a pop culture landscape where everything is so fragmented, uh, you know, you can be the hottest thing one day and then the next day it's it feels like it's over. Uh, you know, Napoleon Dynamite is just part of the lexicon, man. It still lives in a very special place in pop culture. And that is remarkable 20 years later. How lucky are we? We we blessed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it had maybe it has something to do with the time machine. It's a time machine, Napoleon. We bought it online. You're right. It works, Napoleon. You don't even know. Have you guys tried it yet? No. Okay, turn it on. It's a piece of crap. It doesn't work. I 
could have told you that. You're listening to John Heater, John Grease, Efren Ramirez, the stars of Napoleon Dynamite on the Richard Krause Show. It's a great movie to throw on over the holidays that the entire family can enjoy. Stand by for the most extraordinary chain of events ever swept up into high adventure. Airplane is drama. This woman has to be gotten to a hospital. A hospital? What is it? It's a big building with patients, but that's not important right now. Airplane is dancing. Airplane is action. Can you fly this plane and land it? Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. Like I picked the wrong week to quit amphetamines. You know it. You love it. That was some audio from the movie Airplane, the 1980 hit spoof, written and directed by brothers David and Jerry Zucker and Jim Abrams. David Letterman said film comedy became different after that movie, and it's one of the most quotable comedies of all time. Based on a 1957 film by the name of Zero Hour, the story of a washed-up pilot summoned to greatness on a potentially doomed aircraft spoofed the genre of airline design disaster movies and wound up grossing $83 million in 1980 and became part of the zeitgeist of American popular culture. The Anything Goes slapstick and furious pop culture riffs pioneered in Airplane can be seen today in everything from the comedy stylings of The Simpsons and South Park to Family Guy and big screen parodies like Epic Movie, Date Movie, and the Scary Movie franchises. David and Jerry Zucker and Jim Abrams have a new book, Surely You Can't Be Serious, The True Story of Airplane. It's available now wherever you buy fine books, and it's all about the making of the movie and the film's lasting impact. I Zoomed with David and Jerry Zucker and Jim Abrams recently to talk about the book and reminisce about the movie. You used to record, the three of you, late night movies looking for commercials and things to spoof. Uh, and you would sort of redub them on stage. Then you found Zero Hour, written by Arthur Haley. It's a pretty good movie, very nicely structured, but you had to make it laughable. Uh, so, David, let's start with you. What did you do to that script and to that idea? Because you had such great affection for it, uh, What did you? how did you start? Well, we I think we started with just the whole plot and a man, well, you know, even before that, we thought maybe we could redub this, but uh, with our voices. But then it was a very short leap to go to why don't we just recast the whole thing? So if you can imagine, you know, our delight in you know thinking of that concept, and then then we started going just you know line by line and scene by scene, um, and and putting in the jokes, which that was the first thing that we did. And so I mean, there was. There was actually a character who said, uh, looks like I put picked the wrong week to quit smoking. Looks like I picked the wrong week to quit smoking. At various points in the script, we just upped the ante a little bit. So that was easy. There was another character. I don't know if it was in that movie. It was probably in another movie that said, uh, how do you take your coffee? And, you know, and that that line came up. But there was and and also surely you can't be serious was a was a straight line. So that's what we that's the first pass. We put in all those jokes. There's actually a line in Zero Hour that we just quote verbatim in the movie that says, I got to find someone back there who not only can fly this plane, 
but who didn't have fish for dinner. Finding someone back there not only can fly this plane, but who didn't have fish for dinner. I mean, that's just a godsend <laughs> for anybody who's in, in the parody business. And, and I might add, not only was there, you know, you alluded to the great structure, but that was all in Zero Hour, including the love story. At the beginning of uh, Zero Hour, the woman says to the man, I can't live with a man I don't respect. And, you know, when when Airplane first came out, that was written by Arthur Haley, but when Airplane first came out, most people assumed that line was written by David based on his relationships with a number of women. <laughs> Poor David, no women respected him, you know? <laughs> well, I'm just glad that you guys aren't mentioning my heroin problems. Jerry, you worked on this script, uh, the three of you, for five years. How did it change over the years? Well, I think more than anything, um, more jokes uh, and maybe um, uh, more of an emphasis on on story, although, as Jim said, a lot of that was uh, was there for us. Um, but, but also, I, I think at the beginning, we were really in love with all these straight lines, you know, mm -hmm. these tough guys talking the plane down. And and we realized we just had much too much of that between the jokes. So so a lot of it was uh, uh, cutting and trimming and and making sure the plot uh, moves smoothly. And then when we got to Paramount, we added uh, on the advice of, of uh, the executive in charge, we, we added the flashbacks uh, to establish Bob and Julie's love story. Uh, so, um, you know, there was, it was a little bit at a time, but more than anything, we, we just kept stuffing in another joke. And David, were there originally supposed to be commercials in it, like you were watching uh, a, a late night movie? Our first concept was to do a night of late night TV. And in fact, the first title of this, the first draft of the script was called The Late Show. You're listening to David and Jerry Zucker and Jim Abrams on The Richard Krause Show. Their new book, Surely You Can't Be Serious, The True Story of Airplane, is available now wherever you buy fine books. It was broken up by commercial segments because... That we could just, we just put those in directly from our show. And, you know, the first person that we gave it to was a, a television producer who we, who we knew. And he, he said, you know, the, I, I'm into this movie, the flying melodrama, but the commercials seem to interrupt the flow. And so we, at first, the next draft was fewer commercials. And then finally, we just took the commercials out. And Jim, when the script was ultimately finished, uh, it was kind of a tough sell. And one of you in the book says, comedy is hard to understand on the page. Was Airplane even more so hard to understand because it was such a new style? The sort of deadpan comedy was something very new at the time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even though Paramount hired us and paid to make the movie, um, I don't think they really understood what they had till after the first day's dailies. And it coincidentally, the first day we filmed Leslie saying, uh, don't call me Shirley. And evidently that's when, you know, Paramount called and said, 
oh, now we get it. And it was also in our deal, in our contract, that they could fire us after two weeks. Because, I mean, we were first-time directors and three of us. And so I think that first day's dailies uh, cleared up that problem. We we never almost didn't expect people, at least after a while, to understand the concept of exactly how straight we were playing it. Uh, we we you know we uh, uh, we talked about that and about the, the casting of those kinds of guys, and they said fine, but they really didn't. I don't think fully understand how that was going to play until they saw it in the first day of dailies. And did you deliberately choose that scene to the, because it's sort of emblematic of the kind of humor that you wanted in the film? Did you yes. choose that deliberately yes, we, to be the we first? Chose, we chose that uh, because it had a lot of lines that would demonstrate what what we were doing, like, surely you can't be serious, and there were uh, a few others. My recollection, and I think we write about this in the book, is that that the scenes in the cockpit were chosen by the producer, John Davison, to start the, the shoot because they were the simplest scenes to shoot. I mean, we were three-time, first-time directors, and there's very little you can do to screw up shooting in a uh, cockpit. And especially when you already have a template from uh, zero hour. Rolls of seats facing forward. How could we screw that up? So yeah. <laughs> let's talk about Lloyd Bridges. In our minds, he was playing Lloyd Bridges um, and he wanted a character. <laughs> and, and we just tried to explain that, no, just do it like you do it in any drama. And and uh, it it just be a tough guy and be Lloyd Bridges is yeah. what we wanted and and I think more than anyone Lloyd, you know, had a little trouble with with that. Although you know after he saw the movie he he loved it and then it was a much different thing when he was in the Hot Shots movies with Jim. You cannot imagine this movie without Leslie Nielsen now, uh, but he was the fourth choice uh, in the book. You say he was. Uh, as they used to say, the guy you cast the night before. Leslie, uh, for his part, is kind of a closet comedian, which we didn't know. And he's a prankster. And he had done nothing but these serious character roles in movies and endless television dramas. And he was anxious to do it. And so uh, that, that was a happy uh, circumstance to get One him. of the things... One of the things we didn't understand as first-time directors is that actors actually come to parts um, wanting to know who their character is. Where's his background? You know, what are my motivations? Stuff like that. We thought actors just came to read the lines. Right. So that was part of our learning curve. Well, you were all about uh, 30 years old, something like that. First movie uh, as directors. Uh, were there ever a moment when you thought, oh, this is a terrible mistake? No. I mean, in in what area? Casting or, or, or anything? No, we always were. We were so naive and so headstrong. We just, we always thought this was a great idea and it would be a big hit. And, and we never thought it was a mistake to direct it. Right. We, we just, I mean, I mean, we were always pretty headstrong, but of course you always have 
there are always moments you have doubts as the, you know, as we talk about in the book, that first screening on the Paramount lot was a disaster, you know? And so like, oh my God, is this really any good? And you, you do have moments, but in general, I don't think we we ever really had a regret that we shouldn't have done something. I mean, small things, of course, but not not about uh, directing or the script or the way we were casting it. You're listening to David and Jerry Zucker and Jim Abrams on The Richard Krause Show. Their new book, Surely You Can't Be Serious, The True Story of Airplane, is available now wherever you buy fine books. Plus, we had, going to our advantage... The fact that for years we had re, uh, run a comedy theater mm. where we would get up on stage, three clearly uncomfortable actors would get up on stage and perform these skits in front of live audiences. So by the time we got to, to airplane, we kind of knew what, what worked because we had lived through those years of the live theater. Mm-hmm. And one of you in the book says, I love Bill Murray and people who do comedy well, but it wouldn't have been the same if a comedian uh, had said that line. And I think we're talking about the don't call me surely. Our our humor is very much scenes we'd like to see. You know, we were always big Mad Magazine fans. And so the funny thing to us uh, was to, to really present the movie just the the way a serious movie would be presented. I mean, the music, you know, we always tell Elmer, we want a B score, you know, and he he got it, you know, and he did that kind of corny score. We didn't want a, you know, a, a Magnificent Seven score or something like that and or, or anything modern. And, and so we liked that. I mean, it was all about that old style of acting, that tough, hard-hitting acting, and the other thing was really not letting on that they knew they were in a comedy. That was the big thing for us. And Bill Murray or Chevy Chase or those guys, they're they're comedians. So that the way they play it, they can't, um, it, it, you know, in fact, it would have been a disappointment for them to try to do it the way Stack or something did. Hold on, sorry. Anyway, to try to <clears throat> do it the way uh uh, you know, Stacker Bridges would do it because people want them to be funny, you know, the way they are. And and also, you kind of, there's not only did we want people who were not identified with comedy, but also these actors were kind of identified with an old style of, of kind of B-drama in a way. In other words, I'm not sure even a Robert De Niro would have worked in those roles because, you know, he's he's too he's known as too great an actor. And a good example of this probably would be the you know the the captain over and the 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 little boy scene, and Peter Graves. It's one thing, and then Bill Murray or Chevy Chase would have been a completely different thing. It would not have been funny at all. One of the great kind of blessings of all we got so many breaks in making this movie but one of the great ones was um paramount wanted us to cast uh, david letterman as striker the guy who throws flies down the plane and so he actually came in 
and did a screen test and he wasn't very good and he he was rejected for the and he was as thrilled and we write about this in the book as as um we were that we got to move on david letterman says film comedy became different after that movie why do you think airplane your movie struck such a chord i think it's two things and one is having those guys really not acknowledge that they're in a comedy and the other thing is the pace mm. i mean there is just joke 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 and we kept um it kept moving so fast and uh, uh i i think those two things uh um people really tended to pick up on that was david and jerry zucker and jim abrams co-writers and co-directors of the movie airplane and now the authors of surely you can't be serious the true story of airplane which is available now wherever you buy fine books well i hope we've given you a couple of examples of movies that you can watch over the holidays now to kind of lift your spirits a little bit i know you'll love both those movies give them a chance a big thanks to David, Jerry, and Jim from Airplane, and also to the guys from Napoleon Dynamite. But of course, as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, stay weird in the new year, and we'll talk again soon. Wow.